as I said, first hour, it is not because Will is here. We find ourselves in first Timothy chapter one, please turn to first Timothy one. It's not because Will is here that we're studying first Timothy. It's because we're at this point in Paul's ministry where he's closing down his work and his last three epistles are personal letters to the, uh, the, the, the men that he's training. Timothy and Titus and the sequence in order that we have of letters he wrote to these men is first Timothy and then Titus and then second Timothy the last thing we have written from Paul I believe that you and I are looking at the Pauline corpus of 13 letters 13 letters from Paul <laughs> some think he wrote Hebrews but uh, most probably most probably think he didn't but but of the 13 that we're sure of that Paul wrote I think you have something like five or 10% of what he wrote personally. I think that it took him a long time to write Romans and that's why it's not a bigger number. I believe that Paul is a prolific writer and correspondent. And I get that from reading his letters, the kinds of things he talks about. He talks about detailed situational things that are going on that he hears about. And, um, and we don't have many of those types of things. We have many examples, I guess, but in a lifetime of ministry, 30 years of, of Christian ministry, I'm sure Paul wrote a whole lot more than we have, but I find it fascinating that at the conclusion of his ministry for the Lord Jesus Christ and starting the gospel and building churches in its ministry throughout the Roman empire as the apostles to the Gentiles, the last things we have are the personal letters of equipping the last things, not in, not printed in your Bible. I mean, the last things chronologically that we have of the extant Pauline corpus of the, the, the books that we have from Paul. So we're in first Timothy and we're looking last hour. We looked at who was Timothy and we saw Paul's thematic focal thing about why he's writing to Timothy in verses five through seven. We'll review it very briefly where Paul says, the goal of our instruction, or actually the, the desired end state, the telos, that's goal, of instruction. It doesn't say our instruction in the scriptures, I mean in the, in the actual Greek text. It just says the goal of instruction. The goal of any Bible teaching. And Timothy's being equipped to go teach God's people. But the goal of it, understand what you're after before you, uh, before you start. Know what you're going for is, is what we're doing here. What is the goal? Love. Love from a pure heart, a good conscience and a sincere faith. That's what God wants to bring forth in us through the teaching of God's word, the character of the Lord Jesus Christ. What equipment do you need to love? What needs to be true about your inner character for you to love as God wants you to love? It's in verse five. You need a pure heart, a good conscience and a sincere faith. Sincere, as I told you, is the word um, for not being a hypocrite, not wearing a mask. It's really, I really do want what God wants for you. And I really am willing to sacrifice my interests in that endeavor. Christian love, John 13, 34. So this is the goal of our, of the instruction that God has commended to us. And here's the problem that I'm sending you to go deal with, Timothy. You're going to Ephesus and you've got to, you're going to have problems in magical Ephesus. By departing from these things, from love, some men have been turned aside to worthless talk. I, I did like to point out, I hope you can observe in verse 6, there's mechanics. By departing from the goal 
of character that God brings forth his love through toward others by departing from that goal of a spiritual growth that produces the growth of love in you. By departing from that objective God has for you, some men have been turned aside. This is the relationship between the participles and the main verb. There's a passive sense where they have been turned aside. They find themselves on the wrong track. Because there is a war on, and the enemy of your souls is the enemy of God, and he is seeking to get any way he can to distract you from what God wants for you. And so you get turned aside to worthless talk, wanting to be law teachers, but not understanding either that about which they're speaking or concerning what things they make confident assertions. That's an interlinear translation. I know that we can smooth that out in the New American Standard paraphrase, which says, it is, I mean, they all are. Wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they're saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. What Paul is saying is the people that I'm sending you to rebuke, the people, O Timothy, that you're going to rebuke, don't know what they're talking about. Confident assertions. You know, if I say it louder, it's more compelling to you. You really want to believe that if I scream it at you. Confident assertions. Do y'all, young people, do you know what the word con man, do you know that word? Y'all know what con man, you know, con, you ever hear of a con man? What's a con man? Yeah, it's somebody that's, uh, that's selling you a, an Edsel. Somebody's selling you that, something that's bad. Or, or somebody that's, that's going to, you know, uh, they're asking for change for a hundred, but they hand you a 50 and you don't look at it and you give them change for a hundred. It's a, it's a, it's a thief, but why do they call it a con? I didn't know this till fairly recently. It's short for confidence. It's a guy with a face and a story who you believe it because of their presentation. They're a extroverted kind of a salesman. You can believe it because I'm telling you, and I, I don't tell everybody, but I'm telling you. It's a con. It's confidence. It's because they're making it confident. Young teenagers, boys trying to figure out how to talk to girls. What, what's the advice you give them? Be confident. Be yourself. Don't walk up and mumble. Say something assertive. Hello. Now you're screaming at her. She's going to say, she's going she's to laugh at you. And, and you have to know she's probably going to laugh at you anyway. And you have to choose not to care. And that's confidence. And so there's a value to confidence. There's a real benefit to knowing who you are and what you need to do and what you're about. That's the goal of our instruction. That gives you biblical confidence. But these men find that their conjectures give them a sense of intelligence, a sense of wisdom. I will tell you, and it's lucky for you that I'm here to square you away. That's the arrogance inherent in a lot of people that tend to gravitate toward the fringy weirdness of this thing that he's talking about. And he's going to tell you what he means. Now we know, wait, let's see. Worthless talk. Worthless talk. And, and he's already, by the way, he's already said that you've got I need you to train these people not to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies. Verse four. Now, 
the, the problem is that the Bible is a challenge. It's a challenge to read it. And the best way to do that is with patience, with the fear of the Lord, and with a desire to understand what he is saying, right? The more you focus on the detail and build the, the, your, your theology out of, a, of an isolated detail, the more likely you are to find yourself out in the woods and out of the text making stuff up. That's how communication works. See, I just said works. If all you heard was works and you wanted to run with that, you could say this church is preaching works as opposed to faith in Christ for salvation. Because I said works and that was one detail you grabbed. And so the point of, of what we're saying is these people are reading the scriptures, but they're reading them incorrectly. And Paul has taught Timothy to read them correctly over many years of ministry side by side. And so now Timothy is ready to go and address this problem. Now let's talk about the problem. Now we know that the law, they're, they're trying to teach the law apparently for Christian spiritual growth. If you keep the law, then you will be, be, be satisfactory to God and you'll grow. That's the idea that the law is for your spiritual growth in terms of your keeping it. And so Paul is going to correct that notion by talking about what the law is for, what the law is designed to do. We know that the law is good if someone makes a namimos use of it, a lawful, namos and namimos, a word combination. That's why we'll say a lawful use because he says the law has to be used lawfully. This is a really helpful principle of Bible interpretation. How do you read the text? The way it's intended. You read it for what the author means. He wrote you a letter, try to get his meaning from it because it's not about the letter. It's about the relationship between us, between the two communicators. And so you need to use it as intended. And now Paul is going to tell you why God gave the Mosaic law and echo what he says in Galatians about the Mosaic law. He says, if we know this, that to it's right, it's lawful. If you make lawful use, and here's how you make lawful use. If we know this, that to a righteous man, the law is not uh, kami. It's not appointed. It's not laid forth for the purpose of the righteous man's use. Listen to it. The law wasn't given for the righteous man, but unrighteous and rebellious, ungodly and sinners, unworshipful, profane or worldly father killers and mother killers and murderers. That's a heavy load for a Sunday morning. Pastor, can't you read it out of the English translation that you didn't make? Because it sounds a lot less painful. The law was not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy. That's a horrible translation. Unholy is not a good translation there. I've translated it profane or unworshipful. I'm sorry, I don't have a better English translation for Asabiah. And profane for those who kill their fathers or mothers for murderers. You got to take a breath at verse nine because we're not done listing the categories of personal sin that are the consequence of the fall and our having of a sinful nature. The law, in other words, was given because of sin. That's exactly what Paul says in Galatians. The law was given because of transgressions. And so it regulates the transgressor. It shows you uh, you're standing here, but God's standard is way over there. You're way past the line. So the law was designed to show you your sin and make you 
totally despair of any hope of salvation so that you trust in Jesus Christ who has no sin but died for your sin. This is the lawful use of the law. Ray Comfort likes to try to use the Mosaic law in evangelism with this idea that it shows you your sin. Uh, I can't do an Australian accent. It sounds like a, Brit like a Brooklyn accent. Um, but but you, uh, you learn that you're a sinner by looking at the Ten Commandments. You say, are you a good person? And the person says, yes, I'm a good person. You say, oh, that's nice. Have you ever stolen anything? Did you ever tell a lie? Have you ever thought a thought you shouldn't have thought? That's what the law shows you when God says, don't do these things. You're, you're a sinner. And that's why the sacrifice is inherent in God's uh, system for ritual Israel. So um, why did I translate it father killers and mother killers? That is just awkward English. Well, it's kind of interlinear time. Let me show you this little bitty. Uh, uh, where's the father? Yeah, Metro Luis. Uh, Metro Luas is a mother destroyer. Mater, mater and uh, destroy, luo. Our, our paradigm word in Greek one, luo. You learn all the verb system from luo. And then andro, I'm sorry, and then um, patroloas, patroloas, luos. This is a father, patros, killer, destroyer, someone who kills mother and father. You're like, wow, that is really heavy. This is the law was for that. Yeah, the law is showing you that things are far worse than we think. And I believe what, what, when I read through this list and it kind of offends me of all the things that people do that we're guilty of as, as sinful, broken humans, it reminds me that I don't smell it. I'm sitting in the world of sin and it's not as, as malodorous to me as it is to God. He grabs our attention with the list of sins because this is going on. These are happening all the time. We're shocked by some things, but not others. And I think that we don't take sin seriously enough. Those who believe that the gospel is to tell someone to put their sin away so that then they can believe in Christ as their savior. That first you stop your sins so that then you can trust in Christ. That kind of gospel presentation doesn't really look at sin like the Bible shows it. What the law does is it kills you. It shows you that you're, you're hopeless. You're hopelessly sold out to sin and you have to be bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. And that is repentance. That is repentance. That's not, well, I don't want to sin anymore. I mean, maybe you feel that way. And certainly we need to start hating our sin, but beloved, the sins that you think you're going to give up to, to, to be, to believe in Jesus. Don't begin to touch the sins that you don't know about that you're still doing. Sin is something we learn about as part of our spiritual growth. And so my point is that you need, we need to really embrace the gospel of what Jesus alone has done for our sin. And so that's the righteous man. You don't have righteousness until God imputes it to you. When you trust in Christ by faith alone is his righteousness imputed to us. So the righteous man is not for whom the law was appointed, but these categories of sin. Now, some of you are uh, self I'm sorry, all of us at times are self-justifiers. Well, I'm not doing any of those things. Well, Paul is not telling you the, the exhaustive list. He's showing you the sinfulness of mankind. Everything in the list, listen closely, beloved. This is about to hurt you. Some of you. 
Perhaps, I don't know, but I think it's, it's definitely hurtful to our culture to, today. I'm about to say some things that will be misunderstood and rejected by a satanically deceived culture as hate speech. In the category we have are murderers, people that won't worship God properly, people that are rebellious. These are general terms, unrighteous, rebellious, ungodly sinners unworshipful, profane, and worldly. These are how you relate to God. Father killers, mother. Now we're talking about how you relate to people. Sounds like the 10 commandments. First four, how you relate to God. Last six, how you relate to people. But he gets specific and explicit about other types of sin that are in this list of what Christ had to die for. So let's hear it. Fornicators. Now we're talking about sex between people that are not married to one another. Man betters. That is not a good English word, Pastor Dave, but I think y'all know what I mean because I'm translating the etymological root of the word. I'll show it to you right here. It's arsenokoites, A-R-S-E-N-O-K-O-I-T. In this case, uh, a, it'd be A-S. As the, uh, uh, a, uh, it's A-S. Arsenokoites. I always forget which ending to give you. I think it's the long E ending. Arsenokoite. Arsen means male. Arsenos, it's the, it's the word for male as opposed to andros, which is man. They have that kind of distinction in Greek. Koites means bed or to, to lie down or to, to go to bed. So what this means is a man who lies with a man. That's what it means. It's what it means in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. And in there you have two partners, both male, one an arsenokoites, and the other a malakos. The arsenokoites would be the male and the malakos would be the effeminate. It's translated effeminate, but it means the two partners in the illicit abomination union between two men. That's what it says. Kidnappers, liars, perjurers, any other practice that opposes sound teaching. We're at a crossroads and well, <laughs> we've passed a crossroads in our culture. We're just outlaws now for saying it. Do you have to translate that? Do you, do, can't you hold back on that one and not say that one? Because people want to do that. And it's becoming a popular thing in your culture because it's culturally embraced, culturally imbibed, and then culturally expressed. It's not genetics so much as culture. Because we read there, there's genetic predisposition to sin. I'm not saying there's not. I'm saying that in this topic of the man better, of the arsenokoites, what we're being told is that this is a category of sin that people engage in that they should not. And it's different. It's a different category than the first one. I'd say it's a subset of fornication. Fornication is between two people that are not married to one another. And now we're in a, in a more perverted form where nature is disrupted. Now, did I say that... Um, heterosexual attraction that you shouldn't have towards someone that's not, that you're not married to, or that, 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 that's not a sin. No, Jesus teaches that if you think of it, if you think of the act in your heart of adultery, then that's to God, a sin that you need to confess related to adultery. I think Jesus says the same. I hope you understand in your own heart. You haven't, defile the other person they haven't sinned but you've sinned if you have same-sex attraction 
It's a problem people face. It's always been a problem. We're a broken people. We're a broken collection of sinners. And same-sex attraction, heterosexual attraction that is not to be fulfilled in engaging in the act, this is the pressure that we face in human sexuality. What am I trying to tell you? That just because you have an urge to sin doesn't mean that you have to commit the sin. And that's where the conversation needs to be. It's the biblical doctrine of abstinence. Not the high school parody of abstinence. I'm talking about what the Bible actually says. If you're married, then you engage in the act of marriage. In fact, you're responsible to in 1 Corinthians 7. If you're not married, you are responsible not to engage in that act of marriage. Period. End of story. And that's really where the conversation is because to, 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 t- to talk about people in a, in a sinful lifestyle of fornication or of homosexuality, people in this type of lifestyle, they want to be affirmed and told that it's okay. This is the right thing for me to do because I feel like it because you don't know what it's like to be me. I know what it's like to be me. And I just, this is what feels right to me. But biblically we're told, and we're also taught by nature that no, that's fundamentally disordered. You feel like something that's fundamentally disordered, but don't fret about it. We all have disordered feelings and urges. And what we're learning to do in the Lord Jesus is restrain our lusts in the power of God, the Holy Spirit, because if you're walking by the spirit, you cannot fulfill the lusts of the flesh. So all I'm trying to do in my little summary here is tell you this is a category of S-I-N. That's it. It's a sin. It's a sinful category, and it is sin for which Christ died. And there is no word sin without there being a creator against whom we have sinned. This is really about God. So I hope you understand it is the most loving thing in the world to tell people who have convinced themselves that their sins are not sins. It is very helpful to tell them actually God believes it is a sin. And the judgment that you're worried about is not what the people around you think and the peer pressure and the Facebook and whatever. The judgment that you need to concern yourself with is your creator who says that is a cause for your destruction. So what does love look like in this category of sin? It's a sin. We tell the believer it's a sin. Did you just say believers could be engaged in homosexual relationships? Of course. Of course they can be engaged in homosexual acts. But it's a sin. And it's a sinful lifestyle and it's a problem. But I can't help it. Well, in Romans chapter 1, we're told that some things are, you're given over to. So you never try, you never give any, uh, any suggestion. And so what are the, what's the world say? Sexual experimentation is how to proceed. So you get the kids to experiment, to toy with the idea, and then they find that they are trapped in it. It's a trap. It's a satanic trap. And uh, it is my love for all who are caught in this trap to say so. The way out of the trap is the Lord Jesus Christ. Kidnappers. This could be for slave trade. Most of the time it was and is for slave trade. Some sort of abuse of the person. Liars and perjurers. Now we're getting to something we can handle. All those capital offenses, all those things that in Israel you were executed for. We're done with those. And now we're talking about liars and perjurers and anything else. 
He just says anything else, I've, I've paraphrased, practice that opposes sound teaching. Anything against sound teaching. Now back to context. You're like, wow, the culture we live in is very Sodomite. We're very, like Sodom and Gomorrah, we're very uh, confused about what is good and, and what's bad and what's right and what's wrong. And we have no good cultural ethic to lean on. And what Pastor Dave says here sounds like we're on a different planet. That's what we should think. But it's not new. Paul says you'd have to leave the earth to get away from fornication, from the world's tendency toward fornication. But these, these are the categories of things, these sins are why there is a law. It's to show you your sin. Such things against sound teaching, according to the standard of the gospel of the glory of the blessed God, I think it's the blissful God with which I have been entrusted. So uh, the law is good if someone makes lawful, lawful use of it. If we know this, that the law wasn't made for righteous men, but for the unrighteous and all these categories of sin that oppose sound teaching. And the sound teaching is according to the standard of the gospel. According to the standard of the gospel. What does that mean? Um, according kata plus the accusative. According to the standard of there's only one way that you can become a righteous man or woman. It is by faith alone in the Savior from your sins, the one who did something about your sins. And he will read in context, saved us from our sins. And that's the, that's the beginning of life, of your new position in Christ, because of all the many things God does for you when you first trust in Jesus Christ. You are born again. You are, there, and that's another word for regenerated or given new life, new spiritual life in relationship with God. You are indwelt in this age by God, the Holy Spirit. You are baptized by the Spirit, meaning identified into Jesus Christ by the work of God, the third person of the Trinity. You are therefore uh, in union with Jesus Christ forever. And that's your new identity. You are sealed by the Holy Spirit for your resurrection unto the day of redemption. You are guaranteed God's eternal life because you have it now and you're commanded to grow in it. You have a promised resurrection body, which with your new eternal life lets you physically inherit eternity with your savior physically the resurrection body isn't a spirit is it spiritual in the sense that it's not physical it's spiritual in the sense of its quality and its eternality and inherits eternity with god all these things are true for you the imputation of god's righteousness declared to your account the very moment you first trust in jesus christ did you just say these categories of sin can be done by christians yes because you're not saved by not doing or by doing. You're saved by what Jesus Christ did for you. But beloved, the goal of our instruction is love. Love toward God and then toward what he loves. From a pure heart, from a clean conscience, from a sincere faith. So the problem with the law, the reason for the law was for sin. And the result is the need for the gospel. And that's the sound teaching. Now we know that the law is good if someone makes lawful use of it, knowing this, that for a righteous man, the law is not appointed, but unrighteous and rebellious, ungodly and sinners, unworshipful, profane or worldly, father killers, mother killers, murderers, fornicators, 
uh, arsenokoites, kidnappers, liars, perjurers, and any other practice that opposes sound teaching, according to the standard of the gospel, the glory of the blissful God with which I've been entrusted. This word, blessed God, I don't know if you know what that means. We all kind of know what it means, but we don't really get into it. It's the word makarios. And it means the inner state of bliss or happiness that one has because of good reasons. It's the, it's the inner sense of someone's status in their soul and their, you know, we would say in your bliss or in your happiness or in your joy. That's what the word means. So it's translated blessed when it's applied to God as though the idea of God living in eternal bliss is not exactly what we should expect. Being perfectly righteous enjoying perfect love between the father son and spirit from eternity past of course god is in eternal bliss and i believe all the joy that he's offering us is his joy make my joy complete it's his joy that he is sharing with us so this is the reason for in part for timothy's mission that there's a problem in the teaching in ephesus and it's it's a it's a problem of misunderstanding the law and you can see, again, the Ten Commandments jump right at you and, and how you treat God and being um, rebellious, unrighteous, ungodly, sinners, unworshipful, profane, and then move into the, the sins toward people, murder and sexual sin and these other things. It's, it's the Ten Commandments, how you treat God and how you treat man for God's sake. And so it's a real tight fit with Galatians and with really the, the, the Mosaic Law. So that's the reason for the law, Timothy. And so... Um, what do we have? If I'm telling you that your life is not meant to be regulated by the Mosaic law, which was designed to address this, then what are we supposed to do? What are we supposed to do? By the way, the law is a picture of God's righteousness in contrast to our sin. We don't oppose the law. Understand that you have to understand the law. So what, what do we do if we're not keeping the 10 commandments as our standard for life? Beloved, fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, general self-control against such things. There is no law. You're called to what they used to call the higher life, the higher life teaching got a little wonky, but there is, you're not called to not sin. You're called to walk in the light as God himself is in the light. And now Paul talks about the nature of that walk when he gives thanks to the Lord Jesus, he says, and I give thanks, literally grace. I have Karine echo grace. I have is how you say I give thanks in Greek to him who strengthened me, Christ Jesus, our Lord. I give thanks to him who strengthened me, Christ Jesus, our Lord. Now the word thanks is a weird English word. Very strange from a Greek mindset because actually their thought is I have grace toward Echo is I have, and charis is grace. Charis is grace. I have grace toward him who strengthened me. In other words, it doesn't necessarily say I'm speaking, but it definitely means I have a certain mindset. Some have said, well, this is your verse where you're praying directly to Jesus. Not necessarily. I don't think there's a problem with that, but I think that's, understand what we're saying. I am expressing a lifelong sense of gratitude toward Jesus who strengthened me. And this is our attitude. This is our constant responsibility. Unbelief goes hand in hand with ungratitude. In Romans 1, I give thanks to him who strengthened me, Christ Jesus our Lord, because 
literally because he regarded me faithful with the result that he put me into service. Have we ever thought about the privilege of the service in the ministry of the gospel? I'm always trying to equip you for it. It's my mission. It's my job, according to Ephesians 4. Have you ever thought about the sense of privilege to have God say, I and you and you and me would bear much fruit. It's a huge privilege to get to do God's work. I know it's an acquired taste. Apparently so will heaven be. Because guess what? We get to do forever. We get to be about serving our Father. We get to be glorifying the Son. Carrying out His administration. The work that you're called to do now is preparation for your eternal state. For the new heavens and new earth and the glory that will extend to God. Don't want to, you don't want to be about that? Well, you're missing the point of your life and your eternal life. And so... He regarded me as faithful. What an amazing thought. He regarded me as faithful with a result that he put me into service. I'm translating this uh, participle as um, a result participle. Because God foresaw what he could do with Paul, he gave him an awesome challenge. God also knew that Paul was going to struggle with ego. We all do. God knew that he was going to have to put a little bit of a governor on Paul's ego and put a thorn in his flesh, as we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. God knew what Paul could do, what Paul would do, and he knew what it would take as the perfect coach to get him to perform at the maximum. And so 2 Corinthians 12, God, don't you know that this hurts and I need you to take this pain away? Jesus, take it away. No. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is brought to full expression in your weakness is the, the response our Savior gives Paul in his agony. But I still want you to see the reason he gave me this work is he regarded me as faithful. That's a question for you, beloved, because you haven't made your decisions yet. God knows the end from the beginning, but you have to make your choices. Are you going to be faithful? Are you going to be somebody that grows in the word and gets serious about your creator? If you're not already. Stay serious about the walk with God so that as you look back, you say, you know, God foresaw that I would be faithful too. And so he entrusted to me. How many ministries are destroyed by unfaithfulness? How many ministries, every time there's some Christian that rises up to some level of fame, there's something, well, not every time, but almost every time, something topples them. Billion dollar ministries destroyed with fornication in hotel rooms prostitution, whatever, all the things that happen because people uh, stop, pastors stop uh, focusing on the word and prayer and they start writing this lie called fame. I'm convinced. But Paul is faithful and he's serious about his work and he's committed to it. And so God put me into diokonia, diokonia, that's the word for service. Service diakonos is literally translated servant and we say deacon in english because we like to speak greek we like to speak latin about pastors we like to speak greek about deacons but those shepherds and those servants uh, really need to be about our savior's work all right thanks to him is what paul says because he regarded me faithful 
Have you ever uh, thanked the Lord for thinking that you were faithful and giving you the opportunity to serve? It's a totally different attitude than we tend to think about having a boss that makes us do our work. I want the Lord to consider me faithful and put me into service. Despite beforehand is completed, we're, we're kind of in an, an ongoing sentence. He, he, he considered me faithful and gave me service despite the fact that beforehand I was a blasphemer and persecutor and a violent aggressor. This is Paul as Saul of Tarsus and his persecution of the church. Holding Stephen's, uh, uh, I'm sorry, holding the, the, the executioner's garments while they stone Stephen to death as he testifies for Jesus Christ chasing after the Christians that are, that are fleeing to Damascus with, uh, with curses and anger, spitting mad about these Christians that he's going to stomp out, trying to become the single fireman who will put out the extinguish the flame of the resurrection of Jesus Christ being proclaimed throughout the Roman world. The one who decides that it's on him as the great Pharisee to kill the Christian movement becomes the one who spreads the flames and fans the fire throughout the Roman Empire. Feeds us today. That's God's providence. Don't forget, God knows what he's doing. When there's hardships, when there's trouble, when, there's, when, when someone rises up that you're afraid of, you need to stop fearing man and start fearing the Lord because he's doing something and you need to trust him. The Lord, not the people. So Paul says, God thought I was faithful despite the fact that I was persecuting the church, but I was given mercy. I was given mercy. Do you think Paul is writing to Timothy so that Timothy will be able to write Paul's biography later? Or is Paul writing to Timothy because he's showing him an example? This is how we think of our lives. I was a very accomplished man in my prior life, and it made me a persecutor of the church. And God was merciful to me. Whatever we read in Philippians, whatever before was of gain to me, I consider as rubbish or as dung that I may gain Christ. I was given mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. The reason the, for the mercy, he says, was because of my ignorance. God knew what he was doing. Now, you could ask all kinds of theological questions. I mean, I want to. We want to say, why? Why was he given mercy? You know, how does that work? Like, what if he had done that as a Christian? And we ask this question, this what if question, which is not the point of what he says. The reason he says, I was given mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief is to give us all a perspective about all those around us acting ignorantly in unbelief. Paul's the worst. He was trying to do the, the most abominable thing and ever done by any sinner, which is to kill the spread of the gospel and the message of salvation. If Paul had had his way, then everybody that came after him would have gone to the lake of fire because they wouldn't have known Christ. Understand what we're talking about. And Paul says, God was merciful to me because he knew that, that I acted ignorantly in unbelief. Think about all the awesome potential when you talk about the people around us, the people in prominence, acting ignorantly in unbelief. Look what God could do if he wanted to. If we were in a reconstructionist or a dominion frame where God is building his kingdom through humans so that Jesus would come back and say, hey, I like it. Nice work, good kingdom. Good, good job, guys. End of exercise. If that was what this is, the post-millennial um, view of, of man is constant improving. If that was true, 
then we might say we could expect a bunch more of this to happen miraculously where God gets a hold of all these villains that are seeking to destroy um, in their leadership efforts. They're seeking to destroy freedom and all the things. Imagine all the Pauls that God can make to build his kingdom, but he's not doing it. He's doing something. I'm just saying that's, he's not building his kingdom this way. He's using you to recruit those who will rule with Christ when Jesus establishes his kingdom. I'm going to say it again. The Lord Jesus is, is using you in the power of his spirit to make disciples who will make more disciples. And what those disciples are going to do is rule with the Lord Jesus Christ in his coming kingdom forever and ever and ever. He is building that administrative cadre that will rule with him. That's what he's doing with us. That's our relationship to the kingdom. And so since that's the way it is, I guess we only needed one Paul, but just look what God could do if he wanted to. The problem with us is we're not on mission. We're worried about the things that aren't the mission. We all slip back into it. But Paul says, I was given mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. But the grace of our Lord Jesus, or our Lord literally, abounded exceedingly with faith and love in Christ Jesus. See, God's mercy was applied to me, and then his grace superabounded. Now, the word superabounded, that's this word, huper pleonadzo. This is, this is where you get the word super from in English. It sounds kind of silly because of comic books. But hyper or huper and super are all related because they're all from the same Greek idea. And so that's this word uh, superabounded or abounded exceedingly. The grace of our, of our Lord abounded exceedingly with faith and love in Christ Jesus. There are three or four or six or 12 different interpretations of this summary phrase, abounded with grace or with faith and love in Christ Jesus. The um, most, I don't know. One of the most common interpretations is that this, see, this is a proof text that God gives you faith and you're not really believing God is believing through you or something that you don't ever really do anything. God does everything. And um, that doesn't seem to be what we're told when we're told to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and we'll be saved by the same speaker here in Acts 16, 31. Um, since the words have meaning and subjects and verbs do what they do, I really can't conclude that God believes when you're believing. But that's a popular interpretation that God is giving faith here, that his grace abounded causing faith. <clears throat> the problem with that interpretation is that faith is a very interesting word that has two major meanings. If this is the result of what abounds in you, then it is very likely faithfulness that you are made faithful. Now, Pastor Dave's interpretation, Pastor Dave's interpretation is based on the context. Did he just change something? I did. But the grace of our Lord abounded exceedingly with faithfulness and love in Christ Jesus. If abounded exceedingly produces this word and this word, faithfulness and love, sorry, this word faithfulness and this word love, then this is the product of the abundant grace of God in you. Now, if that's true, it makes sense that he's talking about faithfulness because he said before that he regarded me as faithful. You with me? You see what's going on? So I don't think this is a proof text for God 
forcing faith on people. I don't think it's a proof text for God giving you the gift of faith or anything like that. But if you think that, that's fine. I can't personally account for why I did believe when I personally, my experience, I know I did and I know I do. And I think God set me up for, um, for believing because of how I was, how I, the family I was born in and so forth. But um, I think that this is the work of God in you, all that he's saying in context. So he's talking about ministry. The grace of our Lord abounded exceedingly with faithfulness and love in Christ Jesus. Let me say this. You are not told to passively love. You're not told to just wait until love happens through you and then there it is. You are told to love. And the power of God will be expressed when you make the choice to do what God said to do. And that is, that is absolutely the way the scripture is presented. It never says, here are the commands that you're responsible for, but you're not responsible for them until God turns them on. It says, you Christians, love one another. Do it. What are you waiting for? That's, that's the way this works. So on monergism and synergism and all that theological stuff that people talk about, let's just be biblical and say, God is working in us to do what pleases him, but we indeed must do it. So anyway, the grace of God abounded with me. And then verse 15, it's a faithful word and worthy of all acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Because of this, I receive mercy so that in, the, in, in me first, Jesus Christ might show all long suffering. So he expressed his kindness and his long suffering to me for a pattern for those who are about to believe upon him unto eternal life. So I was made a pattern. That's a very... Uh, awesome responsibility. But I think he then says we're all to be a pattern by virtue of him being a pattern for those who are about to believe upon him for eternal life. So that as a, as the worst sinner that ever lived, the way he says it as the worst, the foremost sinner, because of the foremost sin of killing the church, I wanted to, God just didn't let me do it as the murderer of the church. The apostle Paul says that God had mercy on me so that I would be a pattern. What are you supposed to do with the grace of God? Are you supposed to abuse it and run around in wantonness and do well? We can confess it after we sin. Is that how you're supposed to live? Of course not. I think it's a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. In such a case, God will make the necessary corrections and wake up calls in his loving discipline whom the Lord loves. He chastens and scourges with the whip. Every son whom he receives, you wait for it. If you want to be disobedient to him, he will bring you back to the path and it won't be you paying for your sins. It'll be God training you to serve him. But see, what I'm saying is that Paul, by being this awesome picture of grace from God becomes a pattern for us. So what we're supposed to think is I deserve every day the judgment that God brings about on sin. I deserve the lake of fire. But God has mercy. If God could be merciful to Saul of Tarsus, who tried to kill the church, did it in his soul, didn't carry it out physically, but he tried. If God could be gracious to him, be merciful to him and use him, then he can use me. And that's the pattern. He's the pattern for all of us, for those who are about to believe upon him unto eternal life. In a way, I think Paul means all of us who have heard because of what he wrote of who our Savior is. Finally, but to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, God, only wise, honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. So he takes the, the, the idea off of himself, 
which has been about him, and then says, and by the way, all that I can say about me is really about him. And so he is glorified and honored and exalted. It might be a time to sing immortal, invisible, God only wise. But instead, I have asked for a mighty fortress is our God and God of our fathers in honor of what we've studied. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this eternal life, for fellowship through your son, for the privilege of worshiping you in prayer and giving and song. Father, in the word to know you on your terms. We're challenged by the statements of the Apostle Paul. We're challenged by the uh, commands were given by your son and that are carried forward in the writings of the apostles. And Father, we pray that you would strengthen us to carry out your expectations. We know we need your work in us. We need your grace through us. We know that if there are things we're confused about, you'll bring about understanding as we trust in you, not in our own understanding, but in you. Father, straighten our paths before us and provide for our nation that we could live uh, peaceable and, uh, and that our leaders could be wise. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.